Wisdom Podcast. My name is Holly Weaver, and I'm the owner and operator of Rosebud Wellness, where I practice women's holistic health, utilizing acupuncture, Chinese herbalism, yoni steaming, and Arvigo abdominal massage. And I'm also a new mama. This podcast will be part information on women's holistic health practices that I use in my practice, and part conversations with women who are mothers or hope to be mothers on their journey through menstruation, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by the Rosebud Wellness Shop. You can find us over at rosebudwellness.com shop. On the shop, you'll find six different Yoni Steam herb blends for a variety of different conditions. You can read specifically about all of the ingredients that are in the herbal blends, what you would use them for, and some specifics about the days of your cycle that you would use the herbs. There's also a video for an at-home steaming guide so that you can feel confident that you know what you're doing before you embark on this journey. But if you also don't feel so comfortable just starting on your own, you can also sign up for a consult with me, which is also available at the shop. So go ahead and check out rosebudwellness.com shop. Hello, everybody. I am bringing you a little bit of a different episode today. Today we will be talking about in vitro fertilization, which is an assisted reproductive technology, if you're not familiar with it. Um, so Emily, uh, my guest today, Emily Ginn, she is an IVF coach, and she has also been through um, an IVF journey that has been relatively extensive and is still on that journey right now and is waiting to transfer um, her last frozen embryo um, at the moment. So I had a really interesting conversation with her. I learned a lot myself too. I've worked with clients going through IVF in the past, um, but there's so much to learn. Um, it was a treat to talk with her and she is a mother also to two boys, um, but I thought it would be interesting to bring a little bit of a different story to all of my listeners. So please enjoy this episode with Emily today. All right, welcome back everybody. I am here today with Emily Ginn. She is an IVF coach and she also has a podcast called IVF This and she is a mama to two boys. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for letting, for having me, Holly. I appreciate being on here. Yeah, of course. I've been um, loving your podcast and listening to it and highly recommend it for anybody that's either going through the IVF process or also people that are supporting somebody in that process because it's been helpful for me to hear more about the journey um, and what are some things that are helpful to say and maybe things that are less helpful to um, say to somebody that's going through that process. Um, so Emily, to start, if you can share with us about your menstrual history, if there was anything mm. of note there or was it pretty regular, any birth control history that you had throughout your life? Yeah, so um, I wanna say that I was probably in seventh or eighth grade when uh, my period started. Everything has been very normal. Um, throughout my life, I, um, 
I think the only irregularity that I had, I, I think I started on birth control when I was about 17. Um, but I had very, uh, it was chronic for the time that it was, um, but very sometimes debilitating lower pelvic pain. Um, and then I, through a series of, uh, you know, rule out diagnostic procedures, I was found to have um, what they imagined was a ruptured cyst on one of my ovaries that they kind of concluded was the reason for my pelvic pain, um, which is also the reason I was put on birth control to see if maybe that was one of the issues. Um, and that was when I was 19. And then I really didn't pay any attention to any of it until we started trying to conceive when I was, uh, I got married at 27, 26. He's going to kill me because I can't do fast math. <laughs> um, and then about a year in a half ish later, we started trying to conceive and that was kind of where our journey started. Yeah. So, um, they put you on birth control to help with the cyst or what was the thought process for that? This was actually even before the cyst, okay. um, cause the cyst wasn't even identified until we, the last thing we did was have, um, uh, an exploratory, not an open lap, but a laparoscopic procedure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had been put on birth control starting at 17. So for two years, they were testing me. They thought it was, you know, IBS. They thought it was, um, they were even pretty sure I had, uh, a, an STI at some point, but everything was testing very normally. And so the OBGYN that I had at that time, um, basically said, the only other thing we can do is go in there and take a look because nothing else is showing us anything. Um, and then he said when he got in there that it, it looked like there was like more free flowing fluid than he would expect. So really it was, it was just like a diagnosis of exclusion. We've excluded everything out. This is the one, this is the one thing that makes the most sense. So you probably had a very large cyst that ruptured and now you should be okay. Got it. And I kind of was, so I kind of yeah. was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, once you were trying to get pregnant, what were you, were you tracking your fertile window? Were you aware of like cervical mucus using OPKs and talk yes, through how yes, all yes. that? Okay. And then, um, and then, so it was a year that you were trying to naturally conceive unsuccessfully. Mm -hmm. So then Correct. talk me through, um, once you met with a fertility doctor, what was their initial approach? Were you, did you do any IUIs or was it straight to IVF? Oh yeah. That's such a good question. Um, oh, this is so fun. Cause it's been a long time since I've really gotten like to the granular level mm -hmm. of this stuff. So, okay. So it was late summer of 2013, I feel like. Um, and I had gone to the doctor, the OBGYN for my annual. And I was, I remember distinctly, and I think I talk about this in the first episode of my podcast or something where I'm kind of, I'm on her table and I just bust into tears. Cause at that point we'd been trying for a little over a year and I was so desperate to know why we couldn't get pregnant. Like, was this punishment from God for something? What was wrong with me? What was wrong with him? And I had never met this OBGYN. So she basically walked in and she was like, hi, how are you? And I'm like, oh my God, it's the worst. Um, so God bless her for taking care of me. But um, 
so we had the 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 normal I've only ever had until I met my current OBGYN and I'll talk about that in a minute. I'd only ever had um, just a regular pap smear, right? What we go in for, for our annual, there was nothing additional that was done before what I'll talk about in just a minute. And so she suggested, she referred us to Houston Fertility and a specific doctor. We were living in Houston, Texas at that point. Um, and the first thing we did was a, a semen analysis for my husband. We did two back to back just to have a really good baseline. We did, I think they were like a month and a half apart or something. And what we found was his um, morphology. So the shape of the sperm as well as his motility, which is the, you know, how fast they swim or if they're swimming at all, were, pre were, were very low considering his age and no other um, biological reason for that. Um, so we were pretty sure from the get-go that something was up and then we might have to do a little bit extra work. And then I met with the fertility doctor and the, I think it was the second um, appointment I had with him we did a transvaginal ultrasound and he found a 14 centimeter cyst on my left ovary. And he was like, are you sure that this doesn't hurt? Like you haven't complained of anything. I was like, no, but I, I always had this feeling of being bloated. So I never, you know, it's, it's so funny when, when the medical community doesn't really take you seriously for a long period of time, you start ignoring the things that you, you know, when they first started happening, like maybe this isn't right. Well, nobody's ever said anything, so maybe it's fine. So you kind of start ignoring your body. Was that the first, that was the first transvaginal ultrasound you ever had, even though you had pelvic pain? Ever. Wow. Ever. That's wild. Yes. And that was, what, like a seven year difference-ish? Yeah. So a 14 centimeter cyst. So for those of you who are listening who have no spatial reasoning like myself, think of a giant grapefruit. That's basically mm -hmm. what it was in my pelvis. And so, um, you know, he wanted to do much more investigation. We were talking about going straight into IUIs, but he's like, I can't, we can't do anything until we figure out what this is. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, I'm really, I think he put these words into the universe. He said, I, I'm really surprised you haven't had a torsion yet, which a torsion is where the weight of whatever cyst causes the ovary to flip over on itself and on mm -hmm. the tendons and um anyway so about a week and a half later I'm doing all the things that he's I'm doing all the testing he prescribed all of that I go to work and I am in excruciating pain like excruciating pain and so I I my one of my coworkers who was kind of following along this journey with me she said you need to call your doctor so, something's got to be wrong so I call him I go in and uh, we do uh, an ult another ultrasound. He said, I'm, I don't know how this happened, but you've had, you are, you're having a torsion and we have to go to the OR right now. Um, so I went in, they didn't do anything diagnostic. They just kind of lanced the cyst, let it drain, fix everything where it was supposed to go. That was in like September. Then in October, we moved from Houston to Austin, which is where we live now. And I established new care with a brand new OBGYN. That very first meeting with him, that very first meeting with that new OBGYN, they did a pelvic and they did a transvaginal ultrasound because that was just their practice. That was what they did. Um, I even asked them about it and they said, well, you know, there are so many things that we can see. 
on a transvaginal ultrasound that you can't see in a pelvic exam. So it's just our standard practice to do that, um, which is why I advocate for all women to ask for those every year at your annual exam. Anyway, um, so we did that and he said, I don't know what to tell you, but there is now a 16 centimeter um, cyst on your ovary right now, the same ovary. Mm. And so uh, he pulled records from Houston and it turns out I had what's called a mucinous cyst adenoma. So it looks like a regular cyst, except it gets really big. And on the inside, instead of it being clear fluid, like a normal cyst is, it's kind of like, a, just like a gunky mucusy thing. It's disgusting, but my ovary is always gonna, that left ovary was always going to produce those very large cysts. So we had to remove my ovary. Do they so know what causes that? Just, uh, I asked my, um, the, that doctor and he, I think all he said was, you know, there's no real way to know what happened. We just know that it is a diseased ovary. And mm. so we have to take it out if you have any desire to continue procreating. Right. Um, so we had that surgery in November of 2013. On December 22nd of 2013, I found out I was pregnant. Wow. I know. We That's just had to clean up shop a little bit. Yeah. It was so, taking yeah. up all the space. It was. It was blocking out everything. So, um, yes. So he, that was my oldest son. He was born the following August. Um, everything seemed fine with me. We knew my husband had the male factor portion and motility was always the biggest issue. Um, and I mean, really at, at one, the one hour mark, uh, post collection over 50% of his sperm were non-modal. So, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty impactful, um, uh, analysis that we would had. So we figured we were going to have to do something. So we tried for about seven or eight months and then we started doing IUIs. So we did four rounds of IUIs, uh, one non-medicated, three medicated. What was the medication that you were primarily using? Oh, Clomid. Yeah. I've heard a lot of really bad things about that. I've heard yeah. letrozole um, is something they're using more frequently more recently and people yes. have less side effects with that one. So, but it's, I was listening to a podcast recently. Do you know, uh, Lisa Henderson, Jack, who has fertility Friday podcast? Mm -mm. It's about the fertility awareness, ep, uh, method. And I talk about her like almost every episode I'm, she's great and has a lot of great information. And she was talking specifically about IUI and IVF and um, that you you do really have to advocate for yourself in that setting of like what you need and what you've read about, unfortunately, because a lot of the doctors just kind of have these protocols and don't necessarily yeah. have your best interests in mind. I maybe I actually, they do, but just haven't been updated properly or, you know. What, what I find is because there are so many you know, the nature of especially the United States healthcare system is that it's, it's easier to pull resources. So you have a lot more large clinics than you do mm. smaller clinics. So I'm, I am involved with a very small clinic. It's very like for this very reason with large clinics, um, you have to have protocols approved by, you know, board members and, you know, 
the nature of infertility is that it's so, so specific to the individual, right? You could literally have another 37 year old woman who's experienced the exact same things that I have and a, a 39 year old man who's, who has the same diagnosis and, and assessments and analysis of my husband. And then their protocol might not even be close to what they need. Mm. And I think that when you're a part of big groups, there's, um, this is no shame or anything like Shady Groves or, or CCNY or anything like that, or CNY, um, but they aren't individualized. They mm -hmm. do their best to make it, but by nature of how it's set up, it just can't be. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, uh, so we did IUIs, we did four IUIs, three with Clomid. Um, I 10 out of 10 do not recommend Clomid, but you know, case okay, sirrah. What were um, your uh, main side effects that you experienced with that? Oh, rage, just rage, just yeah. rage in general. Yeah. And I have, I'm, my body's very sensitive to hormones. So I tend to gain weight very quickly mm -hmm. with hormones. Um, and so I think just between those three um, medicated cycles. Cause it was back to back. It was four cycles back to back. Mm -hmm. Um, so those three medicated cycles, I want to say I put on about 15 pounds from the Clomid. Um, so we took the summer off. Um, so I, I, I could kind of get my head right. Um, that was when I found coaching, which is what I do now. And I was able to drop those 15 pounds. And then we went into our very first IVF cycle in the fall of 2016. And how, how did that go? It was actually, uh, it was actually really, when I started learning about um, the things that I coach on, um, I felt very out of control, right? IVF gives you like this illusion of control because you're giving your own medication. You have a very specific protocol, things like that. Um, but you still feel completely out of control all the time. And so I was, I was experiencing that while, you know, pulling from my very long social work career, implementing things I was learning in coaching. So it wasn't, it wasn't as like emotionally difficult as I know, certainly some of my clients and some other people have experienced, but it's still not a walk in the park, right? You're, you're very much putting your body through a marathon without actually running. Yeah. Um, we were pretty fortunate. We had, um, you know, if you ask any IVFer, we can tell you our numbers, right? So I, when, when we had our first protocol, I had, um, you know, I have one ovary, I have only the lonely of righty. Mm -hmm. So I had um, 12 follicles, 11 were retrieved, 10 of those were mature, all 10 fertilized, and we ended up with two chromosomally normal embryos. Mm. So those are pretty good odds for, at that time I was about 33. Um, we did a transfer in February and I got pregnant first transfer and October, we welcomed our second little boy. Awesome. I know. So we were, we were trucking along and this is why, this is why IVF can be so challenging. So up until then I had no experience with a loss or a failed cycle or a failed transfer, mm -hmm. right? I had gotten pregnant and stayed pregnant and that was my experience. So cut to um, the spring of 2020, even though we're in the grips of the pandemic, mm -hmm. we still wanted to go ahead and transfer that, that second embryo that 
we'd always wanted a big family and we thought, you know, this was, this was kind of it. This was our, our, um, there wasn't a question that we were going to have another baby. Right. So obviously this transfer is going to work. So the transfer gets delayed, uh, first time from COVID second time, because my doctor whom I'd followed, um, was opening up her own clinic in Austin. Um, shout out to Fora Fertility. You guys are amazing. Um, and so we finally got to transfer in September and that transfer failed. Mm. And just like any loss, you know, one of the big things about IVF and when you talk about failed transfers, it's not that an embryo failed to implant, right? This embryo had a name. He had a future in my life. He had a you know, I had already seen him walking across the graduation stage in my mind, right? It's not this arbitrary thing that I think some people wouldn't pay attention to. It truly is a loss, just like a miscarriage or something, right? You're, you really do already have an expectation and a love built in your heart. And to really understand someone who's going through IVF, that's very important to know that these aren't just things that happen to us. These are tremendous losses along the way, depending on where you are in your journey. Yeah. Um, so grief was a huge part of the end of 2020 for us. Um, a lot of grief, a lot of processing, figuring out like, is this where we are with our family? You know, we do have two beautiful boys. We're incredibly fortunate. Um, I had always felt a pull in my heart that I wanted more kids, um, but you know, the odds are stacked against us with everything. Um, so we started to kind of look into it. And that was when we identified that not only do I just have one ovary, but I have what's called diminished ovarian reserve. So the number of follicles they would expect for a third at that time, 36 year old woman was about 15 or 16. I had half of that. Mm. Um, so that presented a new hurdle. Um, my husband and I did a lot of soul searching and in the spring we decided, um, we call it our fire sale round, which is everything must go. We got to get it. So we did one more round. Um, and my doctor put me on a, a different protocols, two of the same meds. And then she added a human growth hormone, which is kind of growing in popularity, um, particularly around the diminished ovarian reserve. Um, and we had an amazing cycle. We had um, even though I had seven antro follicles, they only expected to get seven. I actually had four sleepers. So we got 11, mm. um, 11 were matured, 11 fertilized. We ended up with three that we sent for biopsy and one little girl embryo, um, was chromosomally normal, beautiful embryo. So, um, actually a week from this recording, we are transferring her. Oh, that's lovely. So it's, it has been quite a ride over the last nine years. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I, um, that surprised me in working with the IVF clients that I've worked with in the past is, that, yeah, that I, I mean, kind of when we learned about it in school, in acupuncture school, it was like, oh, well, like some women need to go and have these artificial um, or um, assisted reproductive technologies yeah. to help them to get pregnant. And, you know, that they get pregnant and, you know, like I didn't know about all of this potential for failed transfers. And then even 
if the transfer is successful in terms of implantation, there's still a risk of miscarriage, as is with is true with yep. any woman that has a pregnancy. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I can't imagine, I have one daughter and I just, I mean, throughout my entire pregnancy, it was that I was always thinking I was having a miscarriage, I think, because I, I do this work and it is mm -hmm. the most heartbreaking thing imaginable um, just to even think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And even before I was, I, you know, I've always, for nine years, I've been quote unquote part of the infertility community. I really wasn't doing this work until the last you know few years but even when I was pregnant with my oldest son I didn't really have any frame of reference or anything I think it's for most women we still go to the bathroom and take a you know hold our breath when we wipe totally right we're just yeah. waiting for that little drop of blood or something to be there um so I think that that's such a normal process for everyone um and then it's, you know, there, there are levels of hypervigilance that you have, you know, with, with the IVFers, I, I find with my people and myself included, we're so hyper aware of every little twinge, every little pinch, every little cramp. It's like, oh, what was that for? What's going on there? Like, um, I think, I think IVF does a really good job of helping you understand your body even more. But I also think that kind of the nature of how we treat ourselves, infertility is also a breeding ground to like turn against yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard you on your podcast talk about kind of being angry with your body throughout the process mm -hmm. that it's like, this is, or even um, that some of your clients would say like, this is the one thing that my body is supposed to be able to do as a woman and it's not performing. Oh, um, yes. And I just really appreciated the reflection that you had that we're not, this is not the only purpose for women. Yeah. Um, but I kind of want to bring that into my next question in terms of the coaching. Mm -hmm. What did you find was most helpful when you were working with a coach? And what do you find women are looking for support around the most throughout, or is it really dependent on the person, what, what they need? Um, I, I'm going to be honest that the overarching themes are not that dependent. So, um, let me, let me answer your first question. Um, the thing that changed my life was when, um, two things, when my coach for the first time, it was the first time I'd ever heard this and bear in mind, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in social work. I've worked in clinical settings. Like Thought work and, and counseling perspectives are not new to me, right? Um, but this was the first time anyone had ever said, you know your thoughts aren't facts, right? You know that just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. So you can think you're a terrible person, but there's no, and I say this a lot on the podcast, there's no objective measure for that. So it can't possibly be true. And so, and I'm a bit of an antagonistic personality. So I would, I would like lob her thoughts and she's like, I'm, I'm like, no, this is true. And every time she's like, how do you know? How do you know that you're not doing enough? What's enough? Um, so that was the first thing, finding out like my thoughts, just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. And the other one was 
now that you know that your thoughts aren't automatically true, did you know that they're optional? And that was kind of when everything turned because I had, you know, I was raised a, a good Catholic girl. So for at that point, 30 plus years had always operated on the assumption that if I did X, Y, Z, then I was going to be successful. I was going to be fulfilled. I was going to be all these things. Right. Um, and I think all of us get to a point where this is like this unsettled restlessness inside of us. And so it was when I was working with that coach, right, kind of like right before we started our IVF or right around that time, um, the dates get a little blurry, but um, I said, well, if I, this was around my weight, the weight that I gained for the IUI, well, what, if, what else am I supposed to think if I've put on 15 pounds because of the, you know, with, with the medication and things like that? What am I supposed to think other than I'm fat? Mm. Um, and she said, well, that's one thought. You can absolutely, like, I'm, and I say this to my clients too, I, I, you can keep that thought if it feels good, but I can't imagine thinking to yourself, you're fat feels good. So what if you tried, I have a body. I have a body that weighs 15 pounds more now than it did four months ago. Because those are facts. I yeah, know, I, it, it sounds to me like it kind of neutralizes it. It doesn't make totally. it like, this is just like the actual fact, but without the emotion behind it of like making a judgment about what that means. Exactly. Know. And that's a lot of where we have to get to because so many of us put so much emphasis on our thoughts as to like how, how strongly they're weighted or things like that. We put so much drama from our brains and we think that those are facts, but facts are boring, facts are numbers, facts are just facts. And yet we throw so much weight behind our thinking that it's, it's not really, once you get to it and really neutralize it, I love that you noticed it's a very neutral statement. Mm -hmm. um, that's where we get to work and we can choose how we wanna think about this. So for me in that particular instance, the thought that I really held on to was I am learning, I am becoming someone who knows how to lose 15 pounds. Mm. Something like that, right? Just something you can always know if a thought serves you by how it makes you feel. So that was kind of, that's kind of been my guiding principle since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then in terms of working with your own clients, you mentioned that there are some like themes that come up in a lot of the mm -hmm. sessions, if, if yep. you could share about what those are, how you work. Yeah. So, too. so the biggest theme that I notice um, is usually around safety. And I don't, most people interpret safety as like physical safety, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a mental and emotional safety. So many women, because of how we're socialized, how we're cultured, we shut off a lot of our emotions, right? We, we try to dial down the anxiety, except anxiety is so prevalent for us, it's almost hard to deny. Um, but we spend a lot of time resisting our emotions, just in general. And that's because we've never been taught about emotions. So emotions don't feel safe in our body. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a woman has said to me, 
I don't know how I'm, how, how, what I would do if this happened. We're never actually afraid of the thing happening. We're always afraid of how we're going to think and feel about ourselves should that come to pass. And it always, always, always comes down to safety. So a lot of what we do is create safety or safety in the sense of I'm aware of what's happening in my body. I can sit with anxiety and not run away, not use food or alcohol to numb myself. Um, I really can just sit and be uncomfortable and not be okay. Um, another theme, which is so, so prevalent for women is self-loathing. And it can be as overt as I'm a piece of crap or even as insidious as something like, I think I jinxed myself, mm. right? That almost feels like an innocuous statement, but really what you're telling yourself subconsciously is I am to blame for this thing because I did X, Y, Z, right? So it's just a subtle way to beat the crap out of yourself instead of some more people's more uh, overt ways to beat the crap out of themselves. Mm -hmm. But really it comes down to those two things. What's your relationship like with yourself? And do you feel safe in that relationship? Right. And so that's, that's primarily what I focus on. Yeah. Is there ever anyone that decides not to continue and how, how do you support them in making that decision? Or are they at that point, like working with somebody else? Or do you ever assist in making that decision with somebody um, if they've, and what would make that call, you know, um, of like exploring some other options, potentially like if it were, you know, there's a million different options of like using a donor egg maybe, or a surrogate mm. or donor sperm, depending on, you know, what the whole puzzle looks like. Um, yeah, is that ever something that you have to know? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Because it, I mean, it's very real as we get older, um, our, our fertility declines in age, just naturally. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with us. But so as, as women are getting older, when they're starting their families, these are more and more real conversations that we have. Um, what I find is that most women have spent their time telling themselves, I don't know what I would do if, mm -hmm. right? Because, and I always go back to this. So I, I coach from a very, like, I bring in anthropology, feminism, psychology, neuroscience. I bring all of that stuff together to try and help people make sense of what goes on in their brain. But what I find so often is women have spent their entire lives looking externally, like crowdsourcing for information, right? So the entire time, so let's, let's take donor material, for example, because that comes up a lot. There's a lot of shame wrapped up in that, mm -hmm. just like a lot of shame wrapped up in other aspects of infertility. Um, and uh, I had a client who was saying over and over, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I said, what if you just stop telling yourself you don't know what to do? Like, what if we just started there and we stopped that part of the chatter and we just sat silently? And she closed her eyes. We did a few uh, breathing techniques just to kind of relax her. I mean, she was in fight or flight. She was very much in a trauma response. So we just calmed her nervous system down a little bit. And what came out is I was just asking her soft questions. Was she knew exactly what she wanted. 
she wanted to be a mother at all cost. Mm -hmm. She was scared to have that conversation with her partner because of how he might react. Because if he said no, she felt like that was the end of it. Mm. And so I, I think for, for any woman who is considering or even just like that idea has been put in her head of what are the other options, we have spent our entire lives quieting and silencing the voice that we have within that once we're able to just, just stop, stop telling yourself you don't know because that's the only thing keeping you from knowing is that just like that it's like a concrete flood wall or something that if we just move that out of the way your body is going to tell you what you want to do yeah i mean it, and it sounds like relationships and worrying about what other people are going to think has a huge impact on how a woman can feel and maybe they're not even aware that that's playing such a key role in their decision-making or their attachment to it looking a certain way. Um, huge, huge yeah, impact. Another piece I wanted to get into, which I kind of mentioned before of just like knowing how as like a support person, whether that's somebody like me as an acupuncturist that's working with a woman that's going through IVF in whatever time frame I meet them, whether it's like throughout the entire thing, or if, even if it's just in the prior to transfer, after transfer, whatever that looks like. Um, actually, maybe I want to rewind a little bit. I just want to get, what I'm wanting to get into is like things that people say that are helpful and things that people mm. say that are unhelpful. And I, I guess I want to start from before even going through IVF, like just being a woman or I don't know, I feel so like stifled in saying the right thing and gender and all of that. Being a oh, female bodied person um, that's capable of conceiving a child potentially um, of a certain age, I think that you automatically start getting these sort of questions, particularly if you're married or in like a long-term relationship or yep. whatever that looks like. Um, even probably same-sex couples at this point. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but um, I know for me, um, it's there was sort of this conversation starting in your early 30s, really, of just like, when are you going to have kids? And um, I've become more sensitive about that personally, just to people around me, whether it's acquaintances or friends, um, just to not ever ask that question, or yes. are you going to have more kids? Um, you know, it just... I know because I know that um, some people it's not so easy and maybe they are trying, maybe they've had some losses, maybe they're mm -hmm. having, they're in the waiting game of, you know, waiting for the proper treatment and things like this. Um, so mostly it sounds like that's kind of the way to go is just to kind of not ask people. But I wonder if you can just maybe give us some more things that people can say that are supportive and things that people maybe have said to you over time that that while they may have been well-intentioned, maybe weren't that supportive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of this is tricky, right? Because we're making broad stroke generalizations when it's very specific to the in individual, right? So uh, my best friend could have said, hey, when are you getting knocked up? And it wouldn't have been a problem. But if someone I had, you know, had kind of a, an uh, acquaintanceship with, 
were to sit, ask me, so when are you guys going to have kids? And it could have bothered me all day, right? So we just want to make sure it's very well known that everybody has their individual preferences and relationships and things like that. I, I think as far as just one of the kind of one of the basic things that I would say is that if a woman wants you to know what's going on in her reproductive health, she'll tell you, mm -hmm. right? So if you're, if you're curious, right? If you're curious, why haven't they told you? Well, it's probably because they one, don't want to, or two, don't feel comfortable doing it. Either way, it's totally their decision, but it's still none of your business. So a little bit nicer way to say that is if you're really wanting to support someone, being curious as to how they're doing rather than what they're doing. So when I say that, I mean, instead of, hey, when are you guys gonna have more kids or a kid? How are you guys doing? How is it like, are you guys have anything fun on the horizon, right? Much more about, it is a very cultural expectation that we talk about having kids, right? It's kind of this busybody generation that we've kind of grown into and we still do. Um, but I always think that, you know, there's so much judgment and shame that is already surrounding the infertility community, like just us as people, that a lot of times when someone asks us, hey, uh, when are you guys gonna have kids? It's not the question, right? It's not, it's not you saying, you know, it's not Holly asking me, so are you guys gonna have any more kids? It's everything that happens in my brain once I hear those words, right? So uh, uh, if you're on the supporting end, maybe it's much more like um, asking about the kids they do have instead of more kids. Asking again, what's going on in your life? Anything to report, anything you wanna talk about, any, anything. If you know that they're going through fertility treatments, and this is a big one. Number one, don't, don't decide for them what you can and cannot talk about. Mm -hmm. So my best friend, she has uh, her cousin um, is going through fertility treatments. She's had two failed transfers. She's going to a new doctor and they're all getting together. Their family's getting together uh, for a summer beach trip. And her cousin's sister, right? Also my best friend's cousin has a kid. And that was a very difficult time for the sisters because one's going through infertility and, and one got pregnant very easily. My best friend had purchased cousin crew t-shirts for the kiddos hmm. and was telling me, she said, I feel like this is really off taste. Like she hadn't told her cousin yet. And I said, well, why don't you let her decide, right? Let hers have some autonomy. Let her have some agency instead of you deciding it's off color or it's in bad taste. And what happened was she had that conversation and her cousin was like, I think it's beautiful. I'm gonna be a little bit sad that I don't have one, but like, it's, it's really, it's a cute idea, right? So giving that person who's going through fertility treatments or infertility agency in what's happening. Um, I can't tell you how many of my clients have missed pregnancy announcements from friends because the friends were scared to tell them. So then they find out on Facebook or on Instagram, and it's just because people are making decisions for us that is usually very hurtful. 
um, usually because people don't want to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I mean, I can really relate when you first were talking about that cousin crew situation. I was like, oh God, just get rid of them, you know, pretend it never happened. And that is kind of how I feel sometimes, um, just sort of like saying nothing because I'm afraid, I'm so afraid of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, because it really is person dependent what the right thing is. And so I wanted to also transition sort of into one of the things that I heard you talk about um, is toxic positivity. And mm -hmm. I think that I can be um, guilty of that at times, not just around this. I mean, so many of the things that we're talking about, you could apply to a variety of different Correct. challenges in life. Um, you know, kind of just, you know, my husband just broke his arm and I'm always like, oh, it's going to be okay. And, you know, like wanting to be supportive and also be realistic about the, the situation. So I wonder if maybe you can talk about that, about uh, people being sort of toxically positive and, you know, saying everything's going to be okay when maybe it's not, or like, you're going to get your baby baby and maybe you won't. Right. Um, so maybe how you navigate that and, or how you talk to your clients about, about like trying to stay positive and hopeful without mm -hmm. kind of creating false hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, toxic positivity is first let's, let's, make sure we acknowledge this, not all positivity is toxic. Toxic positivity is, is when it's, it's a diminishment and an invalidation of what the person is experiencing, right? That's the part that makes it kind of toxic is it doesn't allow for the human experience, right? So your husband breaking an arm probably hurts. He's probably super uncomfortable, right? Just like healing, but also I've never been in a cast, but I've seen people like using anything and everything to scratch those itches. Mm -hmm. um, so for him in that moment, when you're telling him it's going to be okay, or when anyone tells him, oh, just wait until you get this off. All he's thinking about is how uncomfortable he is right now. Right. And so I think that that's, that is the biggest takeaway is that you know, if you, if you get on any of the infertility boards, like the Facebook groups and stuff like that, you're going to see post after post, don't lose hope, never give up, stay positive, which is fine, except there's not an acknowledgement that right now you might not feel positive and that that's okay, right? And I think that that's, that's the part that's so detrimental is that we've, we're in this, um, I rail against the pseudo empowerment movement that we've been in for the last 10 years or so, the inspogram and all of that, because it really doesn't allow for the natural human condition of 50% of the time, it's gonna be pretty good. You're gonna be happy, you're gonna be calm and 50% of the time it's gonna be painful. Like that is, I truly do believe there's a 50-50 to life. Just like when you get pregnant, you're excited and happy and joyful to be pregnant but also being pregnant is pretty uncomfortable mm -hmm. in many ways, right? Yeah, and giving birth is pretty uncomfortable. There are certain aspects of motherhood sure. that are, are uncomfortable. While they're the mo really amazing and joyful, they're also really challenging and stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you're, you know, let's just say you're, you're postpartum with a third degree tear and everyone is talking about how 
this is such an amazing time and enjoy every minute, sleep when the baby sleeps. And you're like, I can't even go pee without an in- complete anxiety attack at how painful it is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think because, you know, I mentioned earlier, people don't want to have uncomfortable conversations. It is just easier to lob a, well, enjoy this while it lasts or um, be positive, stay positive, all of these things. And all that does is tell the person, this is a generalization, but all that does is number one, tell the person what you're going through. Like, I don't wanna, I I can't get there because it's too uncomfortable for me to talk about. Um, But also number two, if you could just like keep that to yourself. Like keep, keep the uncomfortable, the ugly, the not happy, this, you know, the, all the other things, if you can keep those tucked in a corner, I just want to see your highlight reel, not the behind the scenes. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if your goal is to be, um, a support to someone going through really anything, you know, one of the things I pride myself on, on my podcast is just because I'm talking about things within the context of infertility and IVF, everything I talk about, like you mentioned, is applicable to any part of your life. Um, So if you're talking to anyone who is going through something, always first and foremost, recognize that the only reason you wanna say certain things is probably because you are uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? Is it okay for you to be uncomfortable? Maybe, sometimes it's okay. Maybe sometimes it's not okay for you to be uncomfortable. Maybe sometimes you need to tell the person, um, you know, I want to be here for you. I don't know what to say. Sometimes that authenticity can be much more impactful than not saying anything or saying, you know, offering some sort of toxic positivity, really just being open. Cause more, you know, I, I learned this a lot in hospice when I was working with hospice patients people want to go in there and they just want to talk and say happy things and all of this when the person just really wants sometimes sometimes being still and quiet and just being in someone's presence is the most therapeutic thing that you can do no words have to be said they don't have to be entertained and so i think that 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 art form has been lost in our hustle and bustle like in our culture yeah, it's like I got to get things done. What what are we going to do here? How can we make you feel better, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> it's rather than just like witnessing and yeah, like you yeah. said being present with the person's actual experience and not trying to shift it immediately or maybe at all. Ever. Yeah. 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 There yeah. are things that um many of us go through that we don't want to feel good about. Right. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this as too. One of my very good friends many, many years ago had, uh, she had a miscarriage Hmm. very early on a miscarriage and she got pregnant again a few months later. And she made a comment about, yeah, if I can carry this one to term, right. Which is another insidious way that we beat the crap out of ourselves. Hmm. And I offered, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember that feeling I offered a cliched platitude to her at that point. And it wasn't until the next day that I went up to her and I was like, I I haven't gotten this out of my head. I did this thing and I, I can't imagine what you're going through and I'm sorry. And it was just a moment of me owning up to like, 
I felt uncomfortable for you because it, it was such a strong emotion I saw you having um, that I didn't know what to say. And so I just said the first thing that came out of my mouth and I'm sorry. Yeah. Just but that, them. that repair is so beautiful and so yeah. helpful for a relationship too, you know, of just like, I'm sorry, I freaked out and I said <laughs> something that I, I don't truly feel, you know, I just, right. I didn't want to be uncomfortable. I didn't want to make you more uncomfortable. I just kind of blacked out and said, whatever, you know, um, <laughs> exactly. but, but to go back and, and repair the situation is, I mean, I know that when people have done that for me, it's felt really good. And I know that also for me, when I've done things like that, to go back and just talk to the person again and be received mm -hmm. in that way has, has felt really good to me and for the relationship also. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the best thing when in doubt truth will always that's always going to be the way yeah so being authentic and true to yourself and your friends is beautiful yeah and i really like the other option that you gave which i do this a lot to just say like i'm not sure what to say right now you know like i really want to help you and if there's any way that i can be supportive to you if you're aware of it if you can tell me or, you know, just, I'm like here for you if you need it, but I'm not really sure what the right thing to say is. And maybe eventually um, something will come that will be more helpful and supportive that I can say or share about. But in that moment, it's helpful to just be authentic and say, I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 Cause you know what the other person's probably going to say? I don't know what to say either. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they spend most of their time consoling other people mm -hmm. right think of like grief and loss with a family member or something like that when people are you know they don't know what to say so they talk about their own feelings mm -hmm. which is very normal other people spend more time consoling them mm -hmm. so if you if you're both in that moment just totally owning like well this kind of goes against everything i know so i don't know what the hell to do right now it's almost like a beautiful opportunity for you guys to be right there together Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your story today. Um, I think it would be really good for the listeners to have somebody to share about this experience. I haven't have had anybody on yet that has gone through the IVF process. So oh, wonderful. So thank you. Um, and if you would like to share about what your current offerings are with your coaching and your podcast and your website or anywhere that people can find you on social media where you're the most active. Yeah. Um, again, thank you very much for having me on. Um, so my podcast is called IVF This. It's a weekly podcast dedicated to like coaching concepts to help people kind of navigate. That is my free offering to the world. Um, I have a free mini class, Three Steps to Managing Your Anxiety. Uh, you can find that on my website, which is uh, www.ivfthiscoaching.com. Um, and then I am most active on Instagram at ivfthiscoaching. Um, but I also have uh, kind of accounts on Twitter and Facebook as well. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing about all that. I hope everybody goes and checks out your stuff. I, like I said, I've been listening to your podcast and it's been really helpful for me. Um, and I've been following you on Instagram too. So if you want to, I mean, and like, like we've said, it's, you can apply this type of stuff to any life situation or challenge that you're experiencing, not just um, the IVF journey in particular. That's right. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Holly. Yeah. And thanks everybody for listening till next time. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you feel so called, please give us a rating and a review so other people can find the podcast more easily. Thanks again. Till next time.